Last week, we started a sermon series for Advent. Advent actually started the week before that on the last Sunday in November, but for a number of reasons, we pushed it back a week. And if you are new to Christianity or you're new to the church, Advent is the name applied to the time of year when believers give focused attention to the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his second coming. Advent means coming, so therefore that's appropriate. And what should be realized when we begin to think deeply about the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his second coming, is that all of our deepest comforts and emotions and aspirations are wrapped up in the fact that Christ came in human history to save us and that he's going to come again to fully redeem us and redeem all of God's creation fully and finally. You see, the Christian faith has no real content or promise if these two features of Christ's person and work are not true, his coming and his coming again. Our entire belief system is predicated upon these two realities. So in turn, or or, or in light of all of that, all of our hope, all of our peace, all of our love, both vertical and horizontal love, all of our joy is sucked away if Jesus Christ did not in fact come. All of these feelings are empty and hollow if Jesus is in fact not coming again. But since we are certain that he did come because we're Christians, and since we're certain that he is coming again, we are a people with all the hope in the world. We are a people with all of the peace in the world, all the love, all the joy. And it's these four base emotions that we are focusing upon this Advent. And if you were here last week, you know that I talked about hope. And one of the things I said to you within that sermon was, we don't find true hope until we are hopeless. Until we realize we are at rock bottom, we don't and won't seek a hope outside of ourselves. But it's only a hope outside of ourselves that can save us, that gives us the hope that we truly need. So one of the things I repeated last week is that hope is not a location. Hope is not a situation or a relationship. Hope is a person named Jesus Christ. And until you look to him and him alone, you will fundamentally lack hope. Hope is an object, Jesus Christ. And hope is an expectation that he will do everything that he has promised to do. So this week we turn our attention now to peace. And we'll go from the Old Testament, where we were last week in the book of Isaiah, to now the New Testament, to a passage much more familiar to all of us, a passage that is in Luke chapter 2. So turn to Luke chapter 2. It wouldn't be an Advent emphasis without some time spent in the second chapter of Luke's gospel. I'm going to read from verse 8 to verse 14. So look there if you would. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke writes these words. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's the only place in Scripture that those three qualifiers are said together of Christ. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. Is there a more beloved passage of Scripture than this one? Is there another passage of Scripture more sentimental, more of a favorite than this passage? Maybe Psalm 23, maybe another one, I don't know. But virtually everyone, whatever tradition, whatever Christian tradition, whatever denomination, whether conservative or liberal or somewhere in between, they love this passage. And they look forward to emphasizing and hearing this passage each and every Christmas. And one of my favorite philosophers and theologians, a voice we always hear from this time of year, a short, bald kid named Charlie Brown, You remember that in his Christmas special, he asks, isn't there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? And then Linus steps up with his blanket. And Linus, he takes center stage. The the, the single spotlight comes down upon him, and he recites this passage from the King James Version. And when he concludes his monologue, what does he say? He says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Right there on broadcast television. I love that moment. And we treasure this passage. It it evokes reflection and joy and beauty and wonder. And we are warmed with the familiarity of of shepherds and sheep and fields by night. And, of course, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. But these words about what was going on with the the shepherds keeping watch over the sheep, these words, they, they are simply a prelude to a grand, angelic, announcement. Verses 8 through 13 are just a setup. They are just providing the context for what might be the most important song ever sung. So whether you prefer hymns or praise choruses or modern worship or psalms themselves, or, or maybe you prefer the Beatles or Bieber or Blake or whoever or whatever, know this, the heralding praise coming from the mouths of this angelic host in verse 14 This is a song with such significance. I think it has to be called the most important song ever sung. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How many people, whether they read these words on a Christmas card or whether they hear them recited by Linus on the Peanuts special, how many people have any clue as to what these words mean? I mean, really. Because I'm pretty convinced that the deep, expansive content of the words in this little hymn are either extremely underestimated or just completely misunderstood. Yes, people would say this is a hymn celebrating a baby's birth, that Messiah that was promised. Everyone is likely to recognize that, that idea. But these words also, in a very clear way, these words diagnose a problem. They define your need and mine. And in defining our need, they define the mission of that baby in a manger. 
They define our need, and they define his mission. So, so then what I'm about to tell you is this. These words not only announce a birth, they predict a death. This hymn is simultaneously a birth announcement and an obituary. And as you can see, I bolded the words glory and peace in the verse that I pasted into your notes. And that's because glory and peace are the principal words in this hymn. And it's those two words that I'm going to spend the bulk of my time talking about this morning. You can see there in your notes, the first two clarifications that I wish to make to you is that one, we have a glory problem, and two, we have a peace problem. And then ultimately, and third, I'll show you how God solves these problems. So first, we have a glory problem. I don't know if you've noticed this about yourself, but your life is glory-focused. All of us are this way. You are glory-attentive. You are glory-seeking, glory-obsessed, really. Everything you do in your life, everything you say, every choice you make is done in pursuit of some kind of glory. If you're not sure what I mean, let me explain. You were created, mankind was created to live for the glory of God to live with God's glory in view. You were created so that the principal motivation of your life would be that God be exalted and praised. Did you know that? In the Reformed catechisms, the simple question is raised, why did God make man? And the answer is always, for his glory. You were created so that God would be glorified. More practically speaking, you were created to live a Godward existence that everything you do and say and create and enjoy points back to him. God is to be the reason you do all that you do. Creation itself is a reminder of this design. Creation, the Bible says, is to remind us, to point us toward the glory of God. Everything that was created is meant to be a finger that points us to the character, the majesty, the plan, the might of God, so that every time we step outside, we would be reminded of who God is and what He's done. So that everywhere we look, we see that God is present and active and upholding all things. Everything is to be this signpost saying that He is the center of the universe, not me. So whether it be a a damp, cold morning, or whether it be the song of a bird, or the fall of leaves, or a winter sunset, or the taking of a child's hand, all of those things and a 100,000 other glories as well, they are just shadow glories that are meant to reflect the one glory that is truly glorious, the glory of God. That's the way it was meant to be. That's the original design. But in a tragic moment of disobedience and rebellion, Adam and Eve chose to live for their glory, for the glory of creation rather than the glory of creation. They wanted something in creation more than they wanted God. And ever since that devastating moment when Adam and Eve sinned against God, there has been in the hearts of men glory confusion, or said more severely, a glory war. Which ultimately means this. We are people who would find true meaning and true joy and true peace If we lived for the glory of God, but we do not live for the glory of God. 
Romans 3.23 says it. All have sinned and fallen short. Short of what? Short of the glory of God. That is a universal description. Everyone is included in the word all there in that verse in Romans chapter 3. All have fallen short of God's glory. Even as Christians, we don't always live for the glory of God. Every day, there are other glories that assault our hearts and and, and rob God of His glory. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. For instance, when you were stuck in a checkout line at the store this week, like I was, I don't think your first thought was the glory of God. Your first thought was not, God, I'm so glad you were in control and I'm not. I'm so glad you've put me in a place where the things I need are so accessible at a store like this one. I'm so grateful that I have the resources I need to buy these items and that you've done the same for all these other wonderful people that are in line with me. And Lord, thank you that that with 32 available checkout lanes, you have appointed only these three highly competent cashiers to, to to be working to get all 87 of us out of here in a timely fashion. I don't think that's what you were thinking. It's not what I was thinking. Very often, we forget God's glory entirely. We just go blank on it. Life is seemingly so monotonous and dull and mundane and stressful. We, we ignore God's glory and we live. What do we do? We live for other glories. In fact, you could say that every sin has at its root an exchange of God's glory for some lesser glory. Take lust, for example. What is lust about? Lust takes the glory of God and his design for sex and exchanges it for the empty glory of momentary pleasure every time. That's what lust is doing. Materialism. Materialism replaces the glory of God with the empty joy found found in what you possess, found in what you own, what you have, your stuff. Pride. Pride chooses to live for the glory of self rather than the glory of God. Greed. Greed finds its rest and security in money and not in God's gracious provision and care. These are all things we struggle with, and it's because we are all glory-confused. We misapply glory. We have a glory problem, which is why none of us could say with integrity, I 100% lived for the glory of God this week. You can't say that. I know I can't say that. There were times when the lesser glories, the shadow glories, they became more precious to me, more vital to me than the glory of God. I mean, it's the Christmas season after all. We're all obsessed with stuff right now. It's pretty sick, actually. There's all this stuff we think that we can't live without or that our loved ones can't live without, stuff we have to have. It's so ironic that, that this time of year, Advent, our lives are so focused on creation rather than creator. And what that obsession never, ever leads to is a heart that is at rest. It never leads to peace. It never brings satisfaction because the shadow glories, they cannot fulfill your heart. They were not designed to do that. They don't have the capacity. You you, you can treat the created world like a savior, but it won't save you. It won't even satisfy you. It's not a Messiah. Its glory is shallow, thus our glory confusion, which goes all the way back to Genesis 3. 
all the way back to the garden. And in the midst of this glory war, the heavenly host of angels shows up here in Luke chapter 2 and definitively proclaims to a group of shepherds, glory to God in the highest. And the word here for heavenly host, host, is interesting. It's the Greek word that's actually a military term for a band of soldiers. So you have, a, you have a band of angelic soldiers filling the sky from horizon to horizon, declaring, proclaiming victory over the war on glory. Glory to God in the highest, which means the glory goes to him, to the highest place. The glory belongs to him. This baby born, lying in a manger, is going to restore glory to its rightful place, glory to God. The the war on glory is going to be won, not by creation, but by the radical action of the creator, the one to whom glory is due. I love how G.K. Chesterton described Christmas. I think it resonates with what we find here. He says, there is something defiant in Christmas, something that makes the abrupt bells at midnight sound like the great guns of a battle that has just been won. Which leads us to the second problem. Because we have a glory problem, because we live for the wrong things, we also have a peace problem. We have a peace problem. We, we are a people not at peace with God. The second half of the verse says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the same way we were created to glorify God, you and I were created for peace with God. We were created so that the most important things in our lives would be, the most important thing, not things, but thing in our lives would be a perfect, unhindered relationship with God, our Creator. We were fashioned to have the high honor of being the worshipful, obedient friends of God, and that friendship with God would be the most meaningful reality of our lives. It would be the very anchor of our existence. Without it, we would be adrift and exposed and vulnerable. So in much the same way glory was hijacked by our rebellion, peace has been lost as well. Let's again go back to the garden. There's a horrible moment in the garden when God comes down in the cool of the day to commune with Adam and Eve. It's a pretty wonderful prospect, isn't it? Adam and Eve, the friends of God, walking with him, communing with him at perfect peace with their creator. Just a beautiful thing. Yet, as it plays out in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they don't run out to meet God in this moment. They're not excited to see God. In fact, they're hiding from God in guilt and in fear. They are running from him because they know they have been disobedient. They know their peace with God has been utterly shattered, and they know that they're culpable, that it's their fault. So the first aspect of our peace problem is that we don't have peace with God. In our rebellion and guilt, we lost it. And since we don't have peace with God, we don't have peace within. I love that Old Testament word, shalom. It's a Hebrew word that pictures something something much more fundamental than just the absence of conflict. 
Shalom pictures all things in their proper order. All things are working the way they're designed to work. So peace with God means I have peace with Him, and if I have peace with Him, I have peace within. I have this inner shalom because of this outer shalom. But we don't always have that, do we? All of us have this experience with anxiety, right? Sometimes anxiety is a feeling we, we can't escape. Anxiety can be utterly paralyzing. Or maybe for you it's anger or frustration or, or, or de- depression or discouragement. Within all of those conditions, what's the common factor? Our hearts are not at peace. They're not at rest. I mean, you ever wake up at 3 a.m. and your mind is just cycling through an endless catalog of what-ifs? Your thoughts are just racing toward things that are completely out of your control. That, that moment where you just lie there and wish that you were sovereign. Peace with God allows us to have peace within. Not because we are wise, not because we are strong, or because we know what's going to happen next. Peace with God grants us peace because we have this unique, trusting relationship with the one who rules over all things, who guides us by his hand. And so because of our relationship with God, even though we can't predict what's going to happen the next day or know all that we need to know, we actually have peace in our hearts because we know him. But because the shalom is shattered, so many of our hearts are not at rest. There's no peace within. And the third thing we were created for is peace with others. You see, when I don't have peace with God, then I don't have peace within, and therefore I cannot, I don't have the capacity to live at peace with others. Has, has anyone in this room had a conflict-free 2015? No conflicts, no disputes, no disagreements. How about a conflict-free December? Maybe a conflict-free morning. No? Okay. And that's just us interpersonally, right? All around us is this unrest. The whole world is without peace. Every part of the planet reveals that we have a peace problem. Syria, San Bernardino, Sub-Saharan Africa, Afghanistan. No peace, no peace, no peace. It's nowhere to be found. Our Advent reading this morning... It focused on, and, and then the song was sung with the young ladies a minute ago, focused on that well-known carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And with that song, usually stanzas four and five of the original poem are left out. They're left out of the hymnals. They go like this. And then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. These are words of despair. Longfellow wrote this carol on December 25th, 1864, four months before the close of the American Civil War. And he wrote it grimly hoping despairing for political peace, national peace. Yet that's not really the focus of this angelic announcement in Luke chapter 2. The focus of this is not geopolitical peace. The focus is fundamentally man's peace with God. 
Because if peace with God is established, if vertical peace is achieved, horizontal peace is going to be the result. Remember Ephesians 2. But now in Jesus Christ, you who who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says this, for he himself is our peace. Or Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's those two verses and others like them that bring us to how God solves our glory problem and ultimately our peace problem. If I have a glory problem and I have a peace problem, then what I fundamentally suffer from is a heart problem. Which is to say, my problem isn't my relationships, my problem isn't my situation or my location, my problem is me. My problem is that there's something broken in my heart. And so David gets it right when he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God. That's what we need, radical, personal, long-term heart change, because that's our problem. And we can't solve the problem ourselves. Notice the prayer. You, God, you give me, create in me a clean heart. Not God, give me the strength to clean myself up. Not God, you know, sort of accept the way in which I've worked to clean up my heart. No, no, no. This is God-centered This is a recognition that God is the one that creates these things. God, create in me a clean heart. I can't do it. You have to do it. The prophecies of Jesus are very clear that he's coming to address this heart problem. God says through Ezekiel, I will give them a new heart. I will take the heart of stone out of them and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's the Lord's work, that this heart, this heart that's resistant and incapable of change, would become a heart alive and then tuned in to God's good purposes. Which then results in a people who, who once lived for their own glory, but who would now, by God's grace, live for His glory. And they would do this, they would live this way, not just in religious matters, not just in one little area of life. Okay, God's glory, you you get to be manifest here. You get to be the focus here. No, they they, they do this in all of life. That there would be this thing that motivates me, that would be bigger than me, bigger than than what I think I need, bigger than the, the pleasure of the moment that I would have a heart captivated, fixated, obsessed with the glory of God. That, folks, is the mission of Jesus, that I, that you would be brought apart from what I would be able to do on my own into peace with God. And so let me ask you this, is it okay? Is it okay that that masses and masses and masses of people around us do not live in peace with God? Is it okay that that in the nations around the world, masses and masses and masses of people live with no knowledge of what it means to live at peace with God? Is that okay? No, it's not okay. 
Most people, people in your neighborhood, people in your family, people that you work with, they, they don't understand all this. They, they, they don't understand how fundamentally upside down our pursuit of glory has become. They don't understand how restless they truly are because they're not at rest and at peace with God. And, and those realities, th- those things ought to break your heart. Those things ought to make you weep. We must not be comfortable with the brokenness of people with such a glory problem and such a peace problem because here's the bottom line in all of this. If it were okay for people to live for their own glory, if it were okay for people to live in fractured relationship with God, if that were okay, then Jesus would not have come. His mission would not have been necessary if that were okay. But the glory problem and the peace problem, God wanted it fixed, so he sent his son, made him born of a virgin, had him born in Bethlehem, had him lying in a manger, a feeding trough essentially, and announced his, son, his coming to this group of shepherds. Men who looked after and cared for the lambs that were used for the sacrifices in the temple. These humble shepherds, they would be summoned to see the true lamb. The true lamb who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Maybe better translated, peace to those whom his grace is given. You see, our only hope for peace is grace. And the vehicle of grace that we read about and that we know about through the truth of the gospel, the vehicle of grace is a death. The stolen glory and the shattered peace, it has left all of us, every single one of us, guilty. And so rather than living for God, what have we done? We have sought to be God ourselves. And the sentence of that misguided search, the penalty, the wage that that sin earns us is death. That's what we've got coming to us. But here's where the birth announcement comes in. You don't understand the baby in a manger unless you know that the baby came to be a lamb, the perfect spotless lamb of God. That was the plan for him to come, and from day one, all of his thoughts, all of his desires, all of his actions and reactions would be fully and completely lived to the glory of God. He would do it. He would achieve it. He would accomplish that life. He would live the life we could not live, and on the cross, he would bear our penalty. And in bearing our penalty, he would face the rejection of the Father so that we could know the Father's acceptance and so that we could be in peace with him. He came willingly. He came knowledgeable. He knew what the price would be. The baby did. Jesus did. He must die so that we would live. He must become human so we can recapture what it really means to be human so that we could be a people living for his glory And therefore, we could be at peace with God. Glory to God in the highest and peace to those upon whom his favor rests. As we sang together in the first service this morning, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners brought into peaceful relationship. How? The baby, the child, the one wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying 
in a manger. He brings peace to the hearts of those who have no peace. And let me tell you today, if, if you lack peace, if the anxiety and the depression and the discouragement and the worry and all these other things, if those are things that are just pressing down on you and there's no hope, there's no peace, there's no way out, it seems, it is in, the, it is in Jesus Christ that you will find peace today. You put your trust in him. You you recognize your own inadequacy to achieve peace. You recognize your own vain attempts at glory and in seeking God's glory in all kinds of places. And you say with the angels, no, 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 no. It's glory to God in the highest. It's glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace upon whom his favor rests. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that is just so powerful. And even a verse like this that we read so many times this time of year, and we hear and we see on banners and in cards, Lord. I I pray that you would continue to illuminate our hearts and minds about what's really here, about what's really being addressed as these angels Proclaim a restoration of glory to you, O God, and to peace for us who would look to you in fear for our salvation. God, if there's anyone here that needs to know you, has never put their trust in you, I pray that they would just repent of their sin, repent of the ways in which they seek all glory but yours, and that they would just put their trust in the work of Jesus. Lord, as we gather at this table today, Lord, the the work of Jesus is at center stage for us. The gospel is being proclaimed as we concentrate our hearts and minds on these elements, Lord. I pray that as we do this, you would just press more deeply into us the glorious truth of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Larry.